Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I'm Ron Wilson, CEO at InterviewStream and the host of Talent Storm, where we'll chat about everything that meets at the intersection of talent and organizational performance. We're focused on exploring the tips, tricks, and techniques for identifying and fostering talent and creating high-performance teams and organizations. I'm excited to have Rashmi Aaron joining me today. Rashmi is a keynote speaker and consultant that works with individuals and organizations to create cultures focused on integrity, authenticity, and accountability by connecting those efforts to diversity and inclusion, behavioral ethics, and overcoming adversity. Rashmi, welcome to the Talent Storm podcast. I'm honored to have you with me today. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me. Honored to be here. Awesome. So um, would you mind giving our listeners a quick overview of your fascinating background and uh, what you're doing today? Sure. So I live in Miami, Florida. I would start off by saying my most important role is a mother of two teenagers, which keep me very much on my toes. Um, I, I guess my background is that I grew up in Miami, very much a high achiever. My parents are both from India. And I would say by all accounts, I was kind of always trying to be the perfect kid. So always, you know, was like top of my class in high school. Um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, so I graduated from highest honors there. Uh, then I went to Wall Street, and I was on Wall Street for a few years before I started at Columbia Law School, where I also graduated highest honors. Uh, and from there, I began to practice law. And, you know, I guess it was a short career, but a successful career. I worked at some law firms. Ultimately, I started my own law firm in the real estate space. And my story is one of um, how good people can make bad decisions. And ultimately what ended up happening for me is I had a client that was a real estate developer who was asking me to engage in some creative transactions in 2007. So this is like the heyday before the real estate crisis hit in 08, 09. And the truth is, is my kids were little. My husband at the time was a firefighter. And, and what I was focused on was getting this client because um, I thought, oh, if I can get a big client, that would mean repeat business. That would mean more financial stability. And to me, that meant more time with my kids. So I, I went to go meet this client, this developer, and pretty much within two weeks, I began to work with him. And what I recognize now is I didn't ask the hard questions. I didn't um, do my due diligence. I made a lot of assumptions and rationalizations and justifications for things that I shouldn't have. Uh, I worked with him for about 15 months. And uh, seven years later, I was indicted for bank fraud and conspiracy to commit bank fraud, uh, which was you know, a long journey uh, between FBI visits and getting a grand jury subpoena. And uh, I ended up serving six months in prison. Uh, part of my journey of owning it was being transparent and authentic in recognizing what I did or what I didn't do, uh, being very, uh, holding myself accountable to all of my relationships around me in my community, frankly, actually globally, um, to friends and family. And what I, I learned, one of the biggest gifts I learned out of that is that people are very forgiving of our humanity. And sort of this notion of perfection that I expected my, from myself, I recognized, oh, wow, I'm imperfect, yet I still have value and I can still be loved. And that was very you know, important for me. Um, so after I got out of prison, I came home uh, about four and a half years ago. And since then, I've been uh, pretty actively uh, on the speaking circuit, I guess you could say. So now I'm a speaker and consultant. And over time, as I began to 
basically reflect and, and I needed to deconstruct what happened. Like, how did I go so off path? I learned that the power of my story is to recognize the behavioral ethics components of my story and understanding why I did what I did. Why did I allow myself to make such bad decisions? How did I fall into that? Um, so I've done, done a lot of research in that space. And now I work with um, global corporations, C-suite leadership, lots of associations and um, colleges and universities on recognizing, you know, how do we uh, actually make good decisions? So what is the business discipline for ethical decision-making. Um, and that's evolved. Of course, you know, everything's about evolution. So now I've evolved from there into the intersection of ethics with diversity and inclusion, because obviously it's something that's very timely and relevant. Um, and you can't, you can't have a DE&I conversation without having a conversation about values, in my opinion. Um, and then it happens to be this, lots of people are very inspired by my story as to resilience and how I've overcome. So that's also become part of my my message and my journey. And, you know, sometimes people want me to share that. So I get to do that. That's, that's, that's amazing. And so, um, I know, uh, you know, as I was doing some research and getting to know you, you know, from a digital, digital world, you know, I came across, uh, your, your Rashmi's rules and I'm, you know, and, and before we kind of jump into, you know, some of the, the, the topics, I'd be really interested in kind of how you form these and were these formed, you know, kind of throughout your life or was this really like from that defining moment that you just talked about where, you, you know, you really started, you know, you talk about treasuring every moment, live with purpose, uh, you know, taking time to honor yourself, uh, meditating, um, exercising regularly, staying positive, sleep, continuous learning. Personally speaking, these things all resonate with me. I mean, like when, when I was going through all these, which are, you know, quick little snippets, which I loved you know, they really resonated. And I was just wondering, like, how did you come about, like, you know, instilling these in your life and really making that your way of being? So I'll start off by telling you and sharing how and why and when I made the decision to start doing this. So a couple months ago, you know, through COVID, I began to write my memoir. So that was sort of the first thing that I began to do in COVID when I had all this extra time because I was so used to being on the road, you know, every week, every 10 days. Uh, and I found myself with all, all this extra time while my kids were in school. So I began to write my memoir. And through the process of writing my memoir, um, uh, it was so different than being on stage and a giving a speech because, you know, you're, when you're giving a talk or doing a workshop, it's, you have finite time, right? Limited time that allows you to actually dig even deeper, even though I, I, I obviously am very vulnerable and dig deep in my talks, but the book was a completely different level. And so as I began to hone in on so many other aspects of, of me and my story and my childhood and, and who I am, I recognized, well, well, there's a lot of things about me that yes, I've become a thought leader in the ethical leadership space, let's say, and DNI, but but there's so much more to who I am that I think I want to share with people. <laughs> and honestly, I don't really know if people care. But part of my, me is like, I just want to share so that you know people can know this is how I live my life. So one day I just kind of sat down and I made on, on a spreadsheet a list of things that I do pretty consistently, some of it daily, like exercising is something I do every morning. Um, and meditating, but there's other things that I obviously try to do consistently. Sometimes they don't end up happening happening daily, uh, and so then I just started recording videos. So you know, there's some moments that I'll be I'll say, okay, I'm going to do some video recording, and I'll like record, but I won't even think about what I'm going to record ahead of time. I just sit down, and whatever comes to me is. So the one I just said that got released on Monday was this past week was the one about reading and continuous learning, and that one I just had had a conversation that morning with my son. And so it was so fresh and I felt like, well, I'm going to talk about this because I just had this conversation with my son. So, 
so, so it just kind of, you know, there are little tidbits of my life that, you know, my sister said, well, why are you calling it a rule? Because then it sort of makes people feel like they have to do it. And, you know, part of it is Russian's rule just sounds good, right? The alliteration it of it. Does, it does. <laughs> but, but they're my rules that I, I try to live by. You know, none of us are perfect beings, so I do the best I can. Amen there. I understand that. So that's awesome. And I appreciate, you know, obviously um, you're, you're into being vulnerable. You, you know, you're con- consistently out there, and that's just another way of, of helping people understand who you are and the essence yeah. of who you are which is awesome. So let's, um, you know, maybe we can lean into ethics and leadership. And, you know, one of the things that, that I know you talk about is, you know, what does it mean to be ethically vigilant in the workplace? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, if you can maybe talk about what does that really mean in today's world? Yeah. So I think in today's world, I mean, there's plenty of global scandals, of course, we can all point to as to where ethical decision-making has not happened or where there's been some failure and lack of leadership in the space. Um, to me, ethical vigilance is about, first of all, recognizing that ethics should be at our core in every decision, in every action, in every behavior um, that we do. And it's very hard because life happens and we get caught up in the rat race, the fast pace of life, because we're all trying to achieve goals. We're all trying to get to a place where we've wanted to be at. Um, which I'm no exception. That's exactly what was happening to me. And sometimes when you're on, you know, what I call this like race track of life where you're so focused on getting to the goal that you're, you know, running really, really fast to get there and achieve the goal, it's really hard sometimes to step off and just take a moment to pause. And to me, ethical vigilance is about committing to the, the actual discipline that it takes to make good decisions. And what I share in my TEDx talk, which I did a few years ago, is uh, it's a five-step process, and it's not rocket science. Um, and the five steps are you pause, which I always say, like, look, it's not pause for two days or pause for even an hour. Just take a moment to pause, because sometimes we're just making decisions out of convenience or haste. And when you don't pause, then you can't do the second step, which is listen to your inner voice. So when you pause, then you have the, 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 the ability to recognize and listen to your inner voice, which... By the way, we can call by different names, right? You can call it your gut, intuition, uh, God, the universe, your moral, moral compass. There's so many names for it. We all have it. We're all born with it. We grow into it. We learn as we go. Um, so once you listen to your inner voice, then you can reflect on it. Uh, and then you can do what I call an ethical reality check. So we all have, there's a, a line, right? There's a line down the middle of what's ethical. And we all know what's right from wrong, what's good, bad, you know. And there, But the problem is there's this huge gray area around that line. And if you're on the right side of the ethical line in the gray area, well, that's where you have strategy and disruption, innovation, and profitability, right? But if you're on the wrong side of the ethical line, well, that's where bad decisions get made. And that is the slippery slope. And it's very easy to play in the gray, as I call it. Uh, and so you want to find yourself in the gray area on the right side of the line because that's where the good stuff happens. Uh, but if you don't reflect on your inner voice, sometimes bad decisions are going to happen. Um, once you have then done an ethical reality check, then the fifth step is you make the best conscious decision that you can. And the kicker is no matter the consequences because likely at some point in your life when you make a good decision, you will be risking losing something. And loss aversion is a psychological thing. We don't want to lose whatever. In my case, I didn't want to lose my client. But you don't want to lose, you know, money or a job or a promotion or, in my case, a client, money. You know, so there's there's things that we try to do sometimes to stop ourselves from losing something. Uh, and that psychological aspect, the safety of that, is, is a huge hold. 
So you have to be able to recognize, you know, those five steps. And then I think that to me, that's being ethically vigilant. Is, is this something that you, you teach individuals or is it something you teach organizations? I teach, so both. Um, so here's my theory on this, right? Which <clears throat> every organization is made up of individual human beings, right? right? So individual human beings are coming into the workspace every day, whether it's in a location or at home virtually, with their own stressors, influences, pressures that exist in their lives as family members. So as a mother, as a father, as a sister, as a daughter, um, we all carry and wear all these hats. And every one of those obligations, responsibilities, and titles, let's say, that we have carries with it duties and responsibilities and obligations. And sometimes they're very stressful. So you might be dealing with a sick parent or, you know, a friend that has, you know, is going through financial distress or another friend that's going through marital issues, or you might yourself might be dealing with some legal issues, let's say. All of that creates stress or pressures in a way that can affect you as an individual working in an organization. So as an organization, I think it's really important for us to recognize, of course, individual leaders and CEOs and C-suite uh, have to be able to recognize their decision-making within the organization. But, you know, I, I say to my kids, look, the way you treat the woman at the cash register um, or the man at the cash register, that is a choice. That's also an ethical choice because you can choose to be kind and respect and see the good in somebody else and, and not pass judgment and not place any value in comparison to you or this other person. Um, it's the same thing, I think, in the professional. So in our home lives, I think how we behave as community members and how we work, behave in our workplace, to me, it's all the same. It's all about making good decisions and being ethical and kind. Do you, do you think organizations have an obligation to teach this to employees or should employees kind of have this, you know, kind of as a permission to play? No, I absolutely think corporations need to come in, commit to ongoing training. So I, I always say that ethics is like a fitness model, like fitness. And, you know, if you've watched my Russian news rules, you know that I work out every day. And so to me, fitness is a commitment that I've made and I make time for it in my calendar and I, and I do it even on the days I don't want to do it, you know, but I'm also constantly evolving and changing and growing because that's how fitness is so that I don't plateau. Well, fit, ethics is the same. Ethics is, of course, the Department of Justice has released, you know, its guidelines, the sentencing guidelines and its evaluation for compliance and ethics. And so all of these things, usually corporations will say, oh, okay, we'll have uh, a once a year ethics and compliance training. Or, Let's do an ethics and compliance week or, you know, whatever. And all of that is good and necessary because you can bring in, you know, speakers like me to come in and share our knowledge and lead workshops and things like that uh, and have, you know, maybe some technology spaces that come in and do that. But at the at, on the grand scheme, this is something that, sh that I believe needs to be instituted top down, middle, middle management, bottom front line. Everybody needs to be talking about and thinking about ethics regularly, every single day, you know, and this is something that where the culture should have a speak up culture. So people can come forward and talk and share if there's something that comes up. Um, so and that starts with having a very high emotional intelligence in the workplace, having uh, some empathy and trust, which, you know, really starts with leadership being like, holding themselves accountable and being vulnerable, I believe. Uh, so I, I think organizations should be taking the lead. Leadership should be taking the lead to show that not only is this something that's important to us, it's part of our values. So this is one of our core values is to commit to this. We're going to show it within our culture, but then, you know, one step further is it's not just enough to have it written down as a value and to have it up on a poster, right? Leadership and needs to be living those values. So they need to be values that are being action. You can see in action. Uh, otherwise it's just fluff and doesn't mean anything. 
So I know, um, you know, related to this, one of the things uh, that I believe you talk about is how moral awareness positively impacts organizations. And, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit about some of those positive effects that, that occur when, when organizations and leaders lean into this and really take this stuff serious? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I was a young attorney, let's just start with that, I would say that I was a good person, but I really had a lack of moral awareness and moral recognition or judgment that was like, I just wasn't thinking about it. And there's a concept in behavioral ethics called overconfidence bias, which essentially stands for this principle that I'm going to do, uh, I'm a good person. So, and I'm going to do X. So X must be good. And the, the rationale is, well, since I'm a good person, whatever I decide I'm going to do will automatically be good because I'm a good person. The problem with that is you lack any moral awareness of the decision that you're making and you don't do any, you don't pass any moral judgment on it. And I think until we can all recognize and have moral humility to recognize that at some point on any given day, because of what's going on, you know, outside of our, you know, control, we might one day make a bad decision or be, be tempted to make a bad decision, right? So having the, rec- the humility to know that I might make the bad moral decisions. That's where it starts, right? Um, so more, the moral awareness is having the moral humility to know that you need to be morally aware. Uh, the reason why I think it is absolutely imperative for organizations to lean in is there, you know, you, we can look at statistics if we wanted to, you know, if I had time, I would show you, but the statistics show, uh, you know, that, that when you, when an organization commits to it, values-based leadership, values-based principles, you know, values-based action, um, it a- absolutely translates and converts into a higher ROI, right? So, so you get a growth, which is then going to convert to long-term sustainability and higher reputation and branding and higher recognition, which then contributes to employee loyalty and customer loyalty. So, you know, it's this circle of how things work. And I would say, on, I would say the same for the DEI um, work. I think when organizations lean into DEI is the same, you know, it's absolutely shown that it will affect and grow your ROI. And that's why we should, you know, not just why we should be doing it, but you know, it's an absolute um, outcome of committing to it. So let, let's, uh, let, let's spin into a D, uh, DEI. I mean, obviously there, there's a big awakening finally going on in the world and it seems like maybe this is holding and, and, you know, we're turning the corner and, um, Certainly, I, I, I know, you know, as an organization, we, we're, we're leaning into this. What we do as, you know, as an organization, we're certainly promoting uh, diversity and, and uh, equity and inclusion. I'm just wondering, you know, how are you working with organizations today to help really make this, you know, to, to take real action on this and not just make it lip service? Well, I believe that the DE&I conversation um, starts off with the ownership and accountability of where we're at. So doing a true assessment of, you know, where has an organization been at in terms of all of it, leadership, recruiting, um, employee recruiting, uh, has there been any anti-bias training uh, or anti-racism training? Has there been um, ongoing policies that have been put into place for any implicit bias, let's say, that could could exist? Um, The way I got into it was as I, you know, (laughs) First of all, of course, I'm a minority woman, right? So it automatically speaks to me. And when, when you know, in April and May, as things began to heat up, I began to do a lot of reading on it because I, I wanted to try to understand, first of all, statistically, where were we at? 
Um, I began to read a book by um, Beverly Tatum. Um, it's been around for 20 years, but it's you know it's actually sitting here on, on my shelf. Um, Why are all the black kids sitting in the ca- um, sitting together in the cafeteria? It's been around forever. She just did a 20th anniversary release in 2016, and it's it's a pretty incredible account of historically where we've been at, where we've come, and where we still need to be at. And it, it dissects a lot of different things that I didn't know about. And, and it also addresses, you know, it's obviously not just a black white issue, right? When we're talking diversity, we're talking, you know, genders, um, sexual orientation, lots of different aspects, you know, and also not just black and white, but obviously I'm Indian. So, you know, how has the Asian population been affected? So, and as part of my, as part of my journey through this, and this definitely came up in my memoir as I began to write it, is the understanding of the, um, biases that exist even within my own culture, right? So because of the British colonial um, effect in India, and this is not just in India, this is you know kind of worldwide, um, fair was always more beautiful. So, I mean, I grew up believing that the more fair skin I had, the more beautiful I was. So I r- rarely would allow myself to go into the sun. And I live in Miami. So <laughs> you can imagine, like my kid, my friends would all be going to the beach. And I'd be like, no, I can't go. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't really do like a lot of sunblock back then. So, right. so, so, okay. So then, you know, the, of course the incidents happened in May with George Floyd, you know, the BLM um, movement began to really escalate. And, and I, as I began to do more of our research, it hit me one day, like, wait, wait a second, we can't have a conversation about DEI without talking about ethics and values because they are inextricably linked. Um, totally. So as I began to share with some of my clients, it began, some, began to be something that clients wanted me to talk about because the idea of what I, what I always lead my workshops, you know, my, my talks sort of lead to workshops. And it, what I, I, I say my superpower is I create courage. I create the ability for people to be courageous and vulnerable by sharing my story. That I think is the power of my story. Um, and I credit Brene Brown for giving me the power to be vulnerable. Let's just start with that. Um, but as I began to recognize that I was always trying to instill people to have courageous conversations around ethics, but it is absolutely the same for DEI. So now what I do is I we begin to have these courageous conversations. There's you know various different exercises that I do now with my clients on the, in the DEI space that really I try to weave in the ethics and the DEI because both I think are very part very much part of and need to be part of um, any core values of, of a corporate culture and where it's going to be moving to um, if they want to be sustainable. I think long term. Um, and, you know, I could go into a lot of detail about that, but, you know, I, I think I, I know you have a lot of other topics. But no, yeah, but, no, this, th- th- that's, that's fascinating. I just, you know, wrote down, you know, ethics and morals are interconnected with diversity and, and um, equity and inclusion. And, yeah. and I think, how can you not have those conversations together? I mean, it's that's like, right. you know, and if you don't, that, I mean, um, yeah, the, you're, you're, you're missing the boat. Right. Um, you know, re, re, you know, somewhat related to this, uh, you know, we're very, you know, I'm very interested in, in, you know, bias, you know, conscious and unconscious bias. And I, and uh, I believe you do coaching and training around helping people and organizations kind of remove, um, you know, or mitigate the unconscious bias out there uh, that, that exists in, in, in most all of us. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, are, you know, how do you go about doing that? Are there any tips or tricks or things that you do to, to help, you know, make this more present for people? Um, because, you know, in my view, 
the first the first step is making it present you know making people aware of it and then well, that's what i was going to say it starts with awareness right it starts with you did it's okay it starts with the recognition that okay let's first we need to have a conversation about this mm-hmm. now let's learn about it because people talk about unconscious bias we hear the term um, but i would say if you ask you know 100 people 75 of them won't really understand what unconscious bias is and how they themselves are being unconscious you know unconsciously biased so first, you know, it starts out with that. And, you know, there's, there are things that, you know, familiarity, experience, awareness. So there's, there are things about unconscious bias and aspects. There's like five different aspects of unconscious bias. Um, and then once you can understand and see what those are separately, you can understand how to mitigate them and come to it from a different angle, right? So um, let's say if it's familiarity, right? So familiarity bias, unconscious bias, then you try to recognize like, okay, well, I only want to let's say, hire the people that are like me, right? That I'm familiar with, um, which would be somebody that looks like me, talks like me, has the same pedigree as me, um, all of that. Well, so when you can, once you become aware of that, then you can make a conscious effort to, let's say if you're in the recruiting context, to advise your headhunters, like, look, I want candidates, uh, you know, of all genders and races and backgrounds. And, you know, we could have a very large conversation about Ivy Leagues and the top 20 schools don't always produce, are not the only schools that produce intelligent, brilliant thinkers and talent, right? And you're in the HR space and you get that. You know, I was on a, I was on a panel last week where we were talking about how historically the HBCUs have not been recruited from. Well, why not? Right. That's just a one really good example. Um, but you can talk about all these like other sort of smaller, lower tier schools, maybe mid tier schools. And I, I'm talking as somebody who went to an Ivy League law school. So I get that it's a little hypocritical for me to be saying this, but I've come a long way and I've come to the recognition that that, yes, I was very proud to go to Columbia and I'm very proud of it. And I tell my kids, do the best you can get in, you know, get into the school that you want to go to. But I'm not tied to like, oh, my son has to go to an Ivy League. You know, I recognize that good talent can come from anywhere and you want to fit in where you're going to fit in the best and be happy. Um, I think organizations need to recognize that there are brilliant people all over in every state at lots of different colleges. Um, and that's just one example, I think, of, of how you mitigate and begin to think about it outside of this box that you've, we've, we've just historically put ourselves in, you know, unintentionally for the most part, you know, it's just kind of happened. Well, it's always been that way. Okay. When I was at Morgan Stanley, I did. I helped a lot of the recruiting. My second year there, I was helping recruit the first year analysts. Um, and listen, I was the one reviewing resumes, looking at them, and I absolutely was placed, placing more more emphasis on those that went to the top tier schools. Sure. Because that's how I was. I was raised to think, you know. And it's not that it's bad. Clearly, it's really hard to get into those schools, and there's all sorts of really positive things about it. Um, but I think we have to begin to at least allow ourselves the freedom to recognize that there's more out there. So, so uh, I'm curious about it because you, you you brought it up, and I always ask people who who do interviewing. So back in in the you know in your Merrill days, you were doing you know it sounded like Morgan, you were second Morgan. years. What, what was it? Morgan, Morgan Stanley. Oh, Morgan. Okay, sorry, Morgan Stanley. Yeah, at Merrill Lynch. Um, it, were you ever trained by any to do interviewing? That's a good question. So, in fact, uh, let me think back. Um, okay, as an interviewee, when I was a senior in college. Um, I think the training that I got was talking to my parents. You know, there was career planning and placement. Um, I think that they might have led seminars, but mm-hmm. I've, I've always, I did Dale Carnegie as a kid in high school, yep. and Dale yep. Carnegie really helped me with uh, having the confidence and being a public speaker and all this stuff. And 
I was very sort of politically involved in college as well. So I never felt like I needed them, but I know my friends did attend classes. As an interviewer, when I was at Morgan Stanley, um, they didn't really give us any training. There was like, I remember one time the managing partner sat me down, or the managing director sat me down and or sat a few of us down and gave us like a list of, okay, these are some tentative questions you can ask. Um, but we used to call it, <clears throat> okay, we all know that everything happens based on relationships, right? It's like, who do you feel comfortable working with, in my opinion? Like, okay, once you've passed this idea of a pedigree or, or experience or knowledge base, can you do the job? Right? Would you be able to do the job? Or can we train you to do the job? Or do you have a you know learning curve that you can go up? Then it comes down to do I want to actually work with this person? Right. And so one of the things that I've learned in the interviewing stage and the interviewing process is you've got to be real. You can't pretend to be somebody you're not. Because if you end up in a place where you don't fit in, you are going to be miserable. So in Edward Saley, some of us used to call it the bullpen test, because with the analysts because we were interviewing for the analyst positions. Of course, we weren't interviewing for, for partners. And so we used to sit in, I don't know how they sit now, but back then in 93, we sat in bullpens. So there were four of us typically in like a bullpen scenario. So four desks in a space, you know, open, we could talk to each other. So it's called a bullpen. So we used to say, does this person pass the bullpen test? Like, do I want to be sitting with this person at midnight working? Because uh, we were often there at midnight working, pulling very long hours. Um, or do I want to go have a beer with this person? Or in my case, wine. So those were like the two tests. Um, once we, we, you know, once you could pass, like, okay, this person clearly can do this job and is smart enough or has the capacity to learn, learn the, the, the skills. Do I want to spend time with this person is the next step. And I think that a lot of people, especially college kids, have that stress of um, trying to fit in or trying to be the way that company is. And like I'll tell you that one of, I, I got several job offers when I got out of college. Um, and the reason I chose Morgan over its equally very highly regarded uh, other investment bank on, on the street was because to me, I fit in better with the people at Morgan Stanley. To me, they were more like my people. Um, not Nothing against the other company, it's just that I didn't feel as comfortable there. To me, honestly, from a diversity perspective, perspective it felt a lot more white shoe and male focused, and I just didn't want to enter that type of space. Um, which kind of takes us back to why D&I is so important because you want to hire talent like me that's a little bit more diverse. Right. Um, so, sorry, it's a very long-winded answer. No, no, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a topic that I'm very fascinated by because, you know, one, one, I don't think candidates are getting the opportunity to be prepared as much as they could be and trained and, you know, how to interview and how, how to be and represent the best versions of themselves yeah. as opposed to, like you said, trying to be something you're not. Right. And then on the flip side, the a a just as big disservice going on i think in the in the hr recruiting world is hiring teams aren't being properly trained on how to interview most people i tell you 90 plus percent of the people i talk to on a you know day in day out basis have never ever been through any training on how to interview and it's like like, how do you know how to probe for questions? How do you know, you know, your biases that exist? How do you know how to act and behave? How do you know what you can and can't say or ask? Or, yeah, you know? I definitely think the, the unconscious bias training now um, in the HR space is really important because as, as you know, as hiring is going to start to happen, whether you're hiring new talent out of college or laterals, you know, or promotion hires, uh, if you're not a aware of your own biases this is this problem is going to continue until something gets fixed right. um, especially at a very higher level globally um, these are really big issues look if you look at corporate boards of directors it's it's a similar 
uh, scenario. And so until boards are, are able to recognize, oh, wait a second, we're having, we have our own unconscious biases here. Like, why are we only choosing CEOs and, you know, from very large companies to sit on our boards? Right. Or those that have just retired from very large companies. Are we saying that those small businesses where a mom and pop person ran their own business for 30 years and had equally equal amount of success, relatively speaking, is right. not just as much qualified to sit on our board, right? These are really interesting topics. And why shouldn't that person have the opportunity to sit on a board like Apple, let's say? Right. Um, so. Well, I um, out out of respect for time, I know we've uh, we, we've been going here for about thirty minutes, and I just wanted to. I know we could talk for hours. Um, is there anything else you'd like to cover before we uh, wrap up? You know, the other thing I'd say is the other space we talked about ethics and D&I, uh, but the other uh, aspect of what I've been doing a lot some over the last year is talking about what I call my secret sauce to resilience, um, and it's really uh, came from a lot of the, my Q and A. Um, and so I, I got asked by uh, a YPO group in Malta to come out this year, which of course now is on hold because of COVID, but to come out and actually do an all-day workshop on uh, what are the skills that we need to be developing to overcome adverse moments. And the reality is, is I think it's all of us can recognize it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we will face some adverse moment in our life. And it, it might, it, it'll show up in some different form, or sometimes in my case, it's shown up in many different forms uh, and how we overcome these adverse moments in our lives is really a reflection on on ourselves and we can develop skills you know like let's say meditation that grows the gray matter in our brain you know and the anti-cerebral cortex to be more gritty so these are things that i've begun to do and you know specific exercises to do to help people learn and i love that because to me it's really inspiring and, and motivating for me to do uh and i have a lot of fun doing that so thought i'd share that as well well, that's awesome, and and uh, and I know it's um, as important as ever, given everything going on in the world today. I mean, to have uh, to overcome adversity and to really hone your resiliency in in today's world. So it is. Um, yeah. Well, I uh, I appreciate uh, you. I uh, I think this was an amazing conversation, and I'd like to thank you for your your time and insights today. How can lis listeners best connect with you? So first of all, thank you so much, Interview Stream and to Ron and to Victoria for, for organizing this and inviting me. I'm honored to be here. Uh, I probably the best way is uh, feel free to email me, which my email is rushme at rushmeerin.com, which is R-A-S-H-M-I, and the last name is A-I-R-A-N. My website's also my name, rushmeerin.com. There's tons of information on there. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's all my name, so you can find me pretty easily. All right, we'll make sure to, uh, we'll add that into the show notes so people also have that. So uh, thank you so much. That's a wrap for our conversation with Rashmi Aaron. Uh, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you prefer to get your stream. We'd also really appreciate it if you provide us with a rating and a review. If you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to reach out to us at talentstorm at interviewstream.com. Rashmi, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ron. It's all good. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>